Welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast, where we look at the trends impacting mid-sized companies and the influencers behind their success. I'm Katie Mulligan, Associate Editor of Middle Market Growth Magazine, and I'm here again with Deborah Cohen, the magazine's Editor-in-Chief, to introduce the second part of Deb's conversation with RSM Chief Economist Joe Brusuelis. If you missed the first installment, you can find the podcast at middlemarketgrowth.org, as well as in the iTunes store. For the second part of the conversation, what did you and Joe talk about, Deb? Katie, we talked about the potential global impact of tax reform, which is very near and dear to the hearts of middle market companies. We also talked about the risk that tearing up free trade agreements, such as NAFTA, poses to the middle market. And we also talked about Joe's book recommendations. He gives us an overview of what he's reading these days, and he has some pretty intriguing suggestions. Hmm. Well, in the spirit of holiday reading, uh, did you pick up anything good this break? Actually, I did. I picked up a a compendium of essays by one of my favorite uh, authors. He's no longer with us, Oliver Sacks who uh, was, as many people are aware, an MD, as well as a, a writer who wrote a lot of books about the brain and people's experiences with different disorders of the brain. He was the author behind Awakenings, which was turned into a movie, and titles such as The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. So I've always enjoyed him, and I'm working my way through these essays now. I uh, took a much different genre (laughs) this holiday season. I am working my way through uh, Showdown at Gucci Gulch, which is a book that documents the process of passing the 1986 tax reform package in the Reagan era. It's actually something that I read about when editing our colleague Ben Marcico, who writes a weekly roundup for middlemarketgrowth.org where he looks at the policy news of the week. It's a book that he recommended. And um, so yeah, I've been I've been working my way through that. It's, it's surprisingly interesting uh, for a topic that may on its face appear a little dry. I would certainly recommend it for anyone who's interested in um, legislative processes or, or tax reform. And are you seeing a lot of similarities between the Reagan era and now? I, I think it's maybe more interesting for the number of differences, particularly how quickly the t- current tax reform efforts have moved along compared with uh, the 1986 bill took a lot longer to get mm. there. So that, that's been interesting to read about for sure. Sounds like a good book. Yeah. So as I finish that, uh, depending on, on Joe's recommendations, maybe I'll have something to, to pick up afterwards. So with that, let's get into it. Here is Deb speaking with Joe Brusuelis. Uh Joe Brusuelis, thanks for joining us on this Middle Market Growth Conversation. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so let's shift into the current tax package. You know, I've been reading that the overhaul is is very troubling to foreign executives. Um, particularly, they're you know they're looking at an excise tax on foreign goods, um, among other provisions. So, what is your what's your outlook for international? Well, trade? that's the that's the backdoor border adjustment tax, right? At one point, because honestly. This is the last gasp of the old order. Our economy shifted so much that we need a brand new tax regime, right? We've talked about that. We're we're better off with the value-adjusted tax, which we adjust for wages, and we need carbon taxes on top of this. So we're penalizing bads rather than goods, right? Hmm. It's what economists would call a Bagovian tax, where we just scrap the income and the corporate tax and we we substitute. That, That would be my estimation real reform. 
So, you know, globally, we got the wind behind the sales this year. We're going to see 4% growth with risk to the upside. We have good things to say about the global economy. Now, that doesn't mean some big operators who are selling goods into the United States, you're going to see some excise taxes, and that's going to compress margins for them, right? The adjustment's going to be asymmetric, um, just with, without a doubt. Now, in respect so what, to the what dollar, is that going to do for, for mid-sized companies that want to sell their goods so abroad? Right now, <clears throat> the environment's favorable for mid-sized companies importing in the United States because of political uncertainty and a widening of the current account deficit, at least under current conditions, that favors dollar depreciation. Mm -hmm. Now, my concern here is that the terms of trade might change, right? Yeah. Where instead of a weaker dollar, which favors middle market exports, you could see a more pronounced widening of the, of the current account and the trade deficit because of the increase in purchasing power due to sheer, excuse me, the increase in the volume of trade and demand for goods due to the to the tax cuts, right? Um, which then causes the dollar to appreciate and yields to trail up along with it. Uh, my sense is that the dollar is a little bit oversold right now, um, especially if you look at it at a trade-weighted basis. So we could see a risk reversal there. I would not be surprised at all. It's what we saw in the 1980s when we did two fairly large tax cut, one tax cut and one significant and important tax reform, right? You're talking about the Reagan era. Yeah, the era. Reagan era, right? So we'll want to see how that evolves. Um, the, to be blunt, the dollar depreciation in 2017 has been one of the primary wins behind the sales of middle market exporters here in the United States. Right, it's been a good year. Um, we'll have to see how, again, how that evolves based on the reaction of global capital markets to this profound shift in policy. You know, this is one of the real interesting challenges when you go around the, the continent mm -hmm. and you talk to middle mm -hmm. market firms who sometimes, because they're so busy, they just don't have a grasp of all this. <clears throat> and for some of them, they're like, wait a minute, what happens in Europe and Asia in terms of capital market and right, global right. capital flows impacts me. That's somewhat counterintuitive. And it's something that we need to talk about more. Truthfully, we can't talk about it enough. What about, um, uh, you know, are you concerned about the Trump administration's um, uh, intent to change some of our trade um, agreements. I mean, NAFTA is still... Well, for, um, from my point of view, in terms of the middle market, that's the number one risk next year. It's not the Fed raising rates. It's the Trump administration who, for all intents and purposes, looks like it wants to withdraw from the NAFTA agreements. Disrupting the North American supply chain will asymmetrically impact the middle market in, in a negative way. You know, the, the way to think about the, the supply chain that's been constructed since 1994 is that anybody who buys a car that's produced in North America essentially gets a $4,000 reduction, right? Think about that. So you start to tear down those trade agreements. You're going to affect prices along the value chain, which will then be passed along downstream to consumers, right? That's a fairly large negative risk uh, for middle market firms who 
are attached to the auto mm-hmm. ecosystem and the aerospace ecosystem, right? We spend a lot of time talking about Apple in this country. Our second most important company is Boeing. We don't spend enough time talking yeah. about them. Yeah, yeah they're going to get hit hard. And all of the OEMs. That all, are- all of you. Yeah, I mean, once we talk, start talking about OEMs and about the secondary uh, auto parts market, yeah, you're, what you're talking about is a significant increase in, in operating cost and probably a, a negative impact on overall demand mm. as consumers adjust to higher prices. And of course, it's not a, uh, a shock that 23% of all transactions, that's purchases and leasing, have been subprime financed during the mm-hmm. business cycle in the auto sector. Imagine if the costs go up. We're going to start to see smaller cars again. Yeah, and we're going to start to see a different composition of demand. Yeah. Major difficulties in financing. You know, the auto sector is one of the two most interest rate sensitive sectors, the other being housing. And this is the one at the beginning of the year I said, hey, this is a big risk. You know, and coming off of summer, I would have thought, well, okay, auto's getting a go in a recession. But because of the loss of stock due to the big storms, it actually cleared the oversupply mm-hmm. in the industry. Mm-hmm. And autos are looking really strong going mm-hmm. into the year. We're bigger and need to step up production to meet demand, right? Interesting. Okay. And so the <clears throat> a shift in trade regimes with respect to our two most important partners, Mexico and Canada, uh, would be very ill-timed yeah. at this point. Um, we are going to be out in front on this. We're going to be producing things in multiple languages, talking about the winners and losers and the risks around this. And we're going to do it with our partners at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. That's great. Who's our partner for a middle market business index. Yeah, um, I think that this actual is one of those potential tipping points in terms of the threshold with respect to how the business community is going to begin looking at policy out of the administration especially once the tax cut's done. How quickly, um, if there is a dissolution of NAFTA or like a significant change, how quickly would that work its way through the economy in terms of having an impact? All right, so if they just say they're going to withdraw and then they never do it, well, it doesn't mean anything. Once they withdraw, they got a six-month window to actually begin to set it up. Of course, financial markets are forward-looking, so you're going to get an impact fairly quickly right, in terms of valuations and pricing. Then the disruptions to the supply chain will come later on. You know, you're going to have that 12 to 18 month lag before things start to really get nasty, Mm -hmm. if it's implemented, right? And the risk is sort of two levels. One's just stepped up enforcement, which in and of itself can mess with value chains. And then the absolute withdrawal where tariffs begin to go up, right? They're thinking... And the administration is, is that that withdrawal, it's going to force production to come back home. Okay, we've talked to the trade associations. Let me be out in front. They're not coming back. They're just going to pay the tariff and pass along the price increases. Got it. I don't care whether you're a Democrat or a Republican. Maybe a communist, socialist, libertarian, a Trumpista. It doesn't matter. This is just simple business, mm-hmm. right? The, the expected outcome on the shift in policy isn't financial and it isn't economic. It's organized around purely domestic political preferences, and you can draw your own conclusions on that. What are you reading these days? Is there anything uh, that's uh, particularly 
inspirational uh, that you brought with you on this trip or that's um, on your nightstand? Or? Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Bryn Nielsen's uh, Machine Platform Crowd. What is that about? It's about the evolution of uh, developed economies. You know, for from, say, 1875 to 2014, you know, the economy was sort of essentially organized around this idea of mind. We'll call that human capital, product, what it is that we produce or the service we provide. And then the core competency. You know, you keep it simple, stupid, right? That was sufficient enough to get us through the evolution from steam to electricity to more advanced, sophisticated uh, era of services. But over the last couple of years, it's very clear that things are changing. The rapid structural transformation of the economy following the break, which released lots of opportunity, created lots of opportunity space. Uh, the structural transformation in, in, a re in uh, retail, right? It's undeniable. Um, we have a different economy or a different framework now. Instead of mind, we have machine. Instead of product, we have platform. Instead of core, we have crowd. Mm. Right? Once you begin thinking about this different framework, you're like, wow. We used to just be able to concentrate on our core competency and sort of innovation within our product space, and that, that would be good enough. Now we're going to layer machines on top of mind. We're going to begin to integrate big data, artificial intelligence, and machine learning into the provision and production of our goods and services, right? And then the feedback effects from the crowd, how we treat our ownership of structured and unstructured data, you know, how we analyze, optimize, prophesize, digitize, all of this. That's a completely different economic framework across industries, across the economy, and intra-industry. To me, it seems that's the big challenge going forward, how we all adapt in terms of our market space, right? For some um, middle market firms who are going to stand pat and they don't intend to invest in software and equipment and intellectual capital uh, a property, I, um, that's an existential risk at this point. Okay. Right, you have to be riding along. You have to ride the tiger. You got to get out there and do it, and begin to integrate these things into how you work. Right, or it's not going to happen. So that's that's sort of the big picture read. The other book I'm reading is Anywheres versus Somewheres: The Split That Made the Brexit Inevitable, which is a fascinating book that now looks at not just what made the Brexit inevitable, but really what made the Trump election. More likely than not. Who's it by? The book's by a, a Marxist professor from the UK by the name of David Goodhart. The analytical framework of this text is essentially, look, there are people who are comfortable being anywhere, and there are people who are only comfortable being somewhere, right? My brother and sister and I are definitely in the anywhere crowd. I feel comfortable working anywhere. You know, I have global remit these days. I have to know what's going on mm -hmm. in Mexico and mm -hmm. Canada, mm -hmm. in Germany, in China, right? I have no problem setting up in a Starbucks, getting into Wi-Fi and getting into it, whether I'm in Shanghai or Cincinnati, right? But there are other people who need to be rooted somewhere, whether it's due to cultural or religious preferences 
or lack of exposure and opportunity to engage in social and economic mobility. And um, even though I wouldn't necessarily choose the uh, analytical framework this, this professor does, he makes a good point about why we've seen the populist revolution in the developed economies and how we ought to maybe think about that. My take of this is, is that in terms of overarching policy, we need to begin to think about how do we create pathways for entrance into the new economy from those who've been left behind. So are we talking about a pro just in simple terms, a parochial view versus yeah. a global awareness? That's right. In, Brit in Britain, it's very nasty. They call it Little Britain. I don't like that discourse. Hmm. That's demeaning, right? I, I prefer to talk about you know people who live in areas where social mobility is very difficult. You know, I've seen a number of great stories. We're here in Chicago of young people who've migrated here from other parts of the country and they get here and it's like they're in a completely alien life space, mm. right? They, they, don't, they don't understand the preference sets and the behavior. It's completely opposite of what they're used to, right? And most of that's cultural. And then there's the inability to participate in the economic space because they don't have the necessarily skill sets. You know, we're both sitting here and talking about algorithms and, and coding today, right? Well, everybody does that. No, they don't. Right? And we, we, we all know that, yeah. uh, look, we've got two economies, a new and an old one. Right. The new one's populated by about 15 cities, and they're growing between 3 and 5%. It's like nothing ever happened. The Great Recession didn't matter. They just picked up where they left off after the downturn, and everything returned to normal. Rest of the country, not so much. Mm -hmm. Rest of the economy, not so much. So, you know, when you go, I, spent, I spend way too much time in Washington more than I ever wanted or intended to, right? But it seems to me the discussion's all wrong, right? We're fighting over tax policy that's really designed for the old economy that used to exist, right, at the expense of the new one. I mean, you know, you don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg. I think we'd be better off talking about what sort of economic conditions can we create for improved quality growth where we can restore that sort of social and economic mobility and provide mm -hmm. a pathway for people who are interested, right, in participating in this new, fascinating, fast-growth new economy, right? Um, there are going to be people who don't, right? We were having a discussion today about uh, algorithmic targeting. On my Facebook and my Twitter, the targeting of my consumer preferences is so precise. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm blown yeah. away by yeah. it, right? Right. Five, ten right. years ago, I never could have expected Talking something. about what, what shows up in your Amazon feed. or Yeah, or, it yeah. makes my life so much easier. Yeah. Right? I it's mean, a little it's, scary, though. Right, and that, that's the point, though, right? <laughs> Big the, brother. The, the, the anywhere yeah. guy's like, I love this. The somewhere guy's like, hmm. wait a minute, who's watching me, and why is my privacy not being protected here? Right. 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 Can't I just opt out of this right now? You can't. Right. So I think that's the direction. That's the discussion to where we can, again, begin to provide those pathways of entrance, because right now the barrier to entry is so high uh, skills wise and culturally uh, that it, it really upsets people. They feel mm -hmm. like we're abandoning them. Right. Right. You know, U.S. Marines, elite, we abandon no one. We always go back and get our dead. And we do. Socially, not so much, right? 
And that's, that's going to be the challenge, it seems to me, over the next decade. Great. Well, um, that is a lot to think about. Joe Brusuelos, thanks for joining us on a Middle Market Growth Conversation, and we'll catch up on these issues next time you come through town. Happy holidays and Happy New Year, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. Subscribe to the show in the iTunes store where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate us and leave a review to help other listeners find out about the podcast. After you've rated the show, head over to our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more stories about successful mid-sized companies and trends in middle market M&A.